It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, I've been watching some old episodes of The West Wing. This is, you know, 20 years ago. Kind of modeled on the Clinton administration, but I'm in the part now, which is the early Bush administration. Many of the issues are the same, whether it's terrorism or abortion, um, dealing with Congress and so forth. But what's fascinating in terms of something that would be unimaginable today is in the election that they staged to replace Jed Bartlett, Martin Sheen, the Republican candidate, played by Alan Alda, is a pro-choice Republican. And he wins the nomination and he's got to deal with the faction of his party that is against abortion. You know, inconceivable. I, I think it was even inconceivable in 2000. But nevertheless, in the Aaron Sorkin drama, uh, all that comes off as a pretty good guy, but uh, facing Jimmy Smith as the Democratic candidate. Uh, so I'll keep you posted on that for memory lane. And actually, in the podcast later on, uh, I'll have a West Wing-related item. That's just to kind of tease you here. But what a lousy Christmas move. I, this is just unblanking believable. Fox News, for the last three years, outside the building on 48th and 6th in Manhattan, puts up a giant Christmas tree. And just after midnight, today, this morning, that tree went up in flames. It was a case of arson. It was set ablaze by a guy, 49-year-old guy, who was pretty quickly caught and taken into custody. And yet the New York Times headline says, Fox News, Christmas tree catches fire as if, you know, Fox is so incompetent it doesn't know how to put up a Christmas tree and somebody did something wrong. Yes, if you have a guy who is an arsonist who wants to burn something down, I think it kind of suggests a little bit different sort of headline. Just my two cents. And by the way, the CEO of Fox, this is making news everywhere because it's got a visual, right? There's a big burning tree uh, right near Rockefeller Center. It's not the Rockefeller Center tree. It's the Fox tree. Suzanne Scott, the CEO of the company, uh, sent a note to staffers that has been made public. This has been a wonderful, new, wonderful tradition on Fox Square over the last three years. We will not let this deliberate and brazen act of cowardice deter us. We're in the process of rebuilding and installing a new tree as a message that there can be peace, light, and joy even during a dark moment like this. I mean, how low do you have to be? to burn down the Christmas trees. This guy not like Christmas, not like Fox. I don't know. I don't care, but I'm reporting this to you. And speaking of Christmas, uh, here's a little story about supply chain problems as we head into this holiday season, particularly impacting uh, the what's called the beverage industry, everything from booze to beer to soda. Um, typical, grocery, typical grocery categories experiencing a 5 to 10% of productions out of stock, but Beverage shortages higher, about 13%. Shortages in waters, iced tea, soft drinks, beer, hard seltzer. What is soft seltzer? Hard seltzer and canned cocktails. Uh, A guy from the Consumer Brands Association says all the talk around the holidays is about what might be under the Christmas tree, but not enough attention is paid to what consumers are already dealing with. Well, just in my little local grocery store, they have been having shortages like I like Coke Zero, and that was out uh, for a couple weeks. And then the Coke Zero came back, but the Diet Coke was out. Um, it's really getting to be an issue. I, I had to fix something on my car. I haven't done it yet. I went for an estimate on a side view mirror. And the guy said, sure, we can fix it for a whole lot of money. Uh, but given the supply chain, it may take weeks for the part to get here. 
So it's showing up in ways large and small, and it's a complicated bunch of reasons, but anyway. Oh, a shortage of bottles and cans is responsible for much of it. Oh, so you can't get Coke because there's no bottle or can. But trucking and shipping snarls, missing ingredients, labor woes, even freak weather, all are contributing to this. And, hey, there's a congressional hearing today on Instagram. You guys have heard me talk before about how I think it is having a tremendously negative impact, particularly on teenage girls and young women. Uh, so Instagram, I mentioned the other day, is pushing this. Hey, we've got, you know, oh, so now I know the timing. Ah, it's all becoming clear now. The reason that the other day Instagram CEO uh, said, hey, we've got these new things, parental controls, and the little thing that goes beep, please get off Instagram, like any young person is going to listen to that, is because they wanted to have something to sell at the hearing today. So there's a group, a watchdog group called Tech Transparency Project, which says that Instagram and the infamous algorithms uh, pushing drug-related content to teen accounts. This sounds uh, heinous, is, I think is the word I'm looking for. Um, even though the companies, uh, which is of course is Facebook, which is Meta, has pledged to crack down on drug sales, it continues to suggest hashtags relating to buying illegal substances to children as young as 13. As part of an investigation, this group created seven different fake teen accounts. This is an undercover thing. It found the company's algorithms helped sell the hypothetical minors, 13 to 17, connect with drug dealers claiming to sell MDMA and fentanyl. I have a feeling this might come up at the hearing. All right, story number one. I talked yesterday about uh, President Biden trying to put pressure on Russia, uh, which has amassed all these troops, about 175,000 at the Ukrainian border. Well, they had this uh, call yesterday, and it was a video call. Lasted about two hours, so apparently the two leaders had a lot to talk about. The first pictures I saw, excuse me, uh, were from the Russian state media side. In other words, a very large image of Vladimir Putin, and he had a video screen on which Biden was on. And I thought that was actually pretty savvy by Moscow to get out in front. And, you know, they, as they would if they were meeting in person where you have a press pool come in, they say a few words, and then the real stuff happens out of sight. Uh, good to see you. Nice to see you again, my friend. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. So the reporting here, here's a New York Times piece saying the following, that just as expected, Biden warned Putin uh, that an invasion of Ukraine will result in very heavy economic penalties for him and lead NATO to reposition its troops in Europe. Uh, the White House line here is this is going to be far worse than what the Obama administration did in 2014, Joe Biden, vice president, when Russia just basically marched in and annexed the Crimea section of Ukraine. So on this call, Biden also told Putin that any invasion could end Russia's hopes of, com of completing the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline to Europe, which will bring Russia a lot of money. Uh, it is too early to tell whether the much-anticipated conversation, whose details were hard to elicit as both the White House and Kremlin put their spin on it, will alleviate the immediate crisis in Ukraine. So this story says 70,000 Russian troops. Uh, I've read other accounts that had the number more than twice that. Mr. Putin gave no indication of his ultimate intent, American officials said, leaving the world guessing whether he was actually planning an invasion early next year or trying to get the West to pay attention to his demands 
by manufacturing a crisis. Here's uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, saying the president was clear, direct, and candid. So I don't know if Putin was going to invade Ukraine, why would he have a two-hour call with Biden? Well, for one thing, his message is, I'm drawing red lines, and I don't like the way uh, that NATO is handling uh, matters related to Russian security. Uh, here's more from Jake Sullivan. There's no finger-wagging where the president was crystal clear. So, you know, both sides are spinning it. Let's move on to number two. This has to do with a little bit of a brouhaha involving Jen Psaki. It's on the subject of coronavirus or Omicron. So looking at this piece in The Atlantic, and recounts what happened that at a press briefing, uh, NPR's national political correspondent, Mara Eliasson, frequent guest on my program, asked Jen Psaki this question. Here's the quote. There are still a lot of countries like Germany and the UK and South Korea that basically have massive testing free of charge or for a nominal fee. Why can't that be done in the United States? Uh, there is an attempt down to ramp up testing, but we've been lagging way behind for a long time. And I can see where that really, you know, has a deleterious effect on, it means a bunch of people probably have had or do have COVID, don't know it, hard to get a test, you got to go in somewhere, but an at-home test would be a game changer, it would seem to me. So it's a pretty good question by Mara. Uh, Jen Psaki said, well, you know, we're working to increase the accessibility and decrease the cost. And Eliasson said, well, why not just make them free and give them out and have them available everywhere? Saki responded with a sarcastic smile. Should we just send one to every American? Yes, screamed the Internet in the hours that followed. Yes, you absolutely should, and not just one test. Uh, you know, she went on to say that would be extremely costly, you know, in fairness to the White House. Um and Biden had just announced that private insurance companies must reimburse consumers for rapid, these rapid at-home COVID tests. And the administration says it will spend billions to buying them directly for use in nursing homes and other high-risk places. But the pundits are saying this is not enough. Biden is too timid, said one physician at Columbia University. Another epidemiologist said the plan is short-sighted. Um, and others are just weighing in and saying, look, we got to do this. Why is it that we're, the U.S. is behind these other countries? And we got to make it available quickly and cheaply, if not free. So now here the Atlantic says, well, it's a little more complicated. Um, that widespread COVID testing, as least as it's been practiced in Germany, the U.K. and other countries, hasn't really quashed anything. That's not because the tests are failing as a diagnostic tool for individuals in high-risk groups, says the magazine. Rather, we don't have compelling real-world evidence that using them on a massive scale would change the course of the pandemic. In Germany, for example, um, which was the focus of a story in the New York Times titled, Where Are the Tests? A New York Times newsletter. Um, it says here that, according to German reports, rapid tests have become more of a nuisance uh, than a national emergency. But they were hoping that, that would be the case. They reduced COVID to just being a nuisance. I misstated it. But case rates in Germany were, yeah, much lower than in the U.S., but two months later than when that newsletter piece appeared in September, 
The German health minister declared a national emergency. Infections, hospitalizations, and deaths have skyrocketed in Germany since October. The country now has a higher rate of infection than the United States suffered during that fall peak when the Delta variant was. It's still the dominant uh, form of COVID-19 here in this country. I've noticed, the author says, no change in tone from the rapid testing advocates who were so eager to laud the German model. In other words, this has been tried in Germany. It sounds good. It feels good. It smells good. But German rates of infection have now skyrocketed. Doesn't that kind of at least raise skeptical questions about the idea that this will be some cure, kind of cure-all, that this would be some kind of breakthrough? I mean, it still seems to make sense that it's better to have tests available, at least for the, on the individual level. But even before the latest wave, uh, Germany was requiring people to show proof of vaccination or a recent negative test to enter restaurants, bars, movie theaters, salons. And now it's ramping that up. Other COVID news. Um, this is just, you know, it's always on the one hand, on the other hand. Uh, Anthony Fauci said the other day, I think yesterday, that early indications are that this new Omicron variant is much milder than the ordinary forms of COVID-19. But then he hastened to say it's early. We don't know. It could take a turn for the worse. So Pfizer and its partner BioNTech uh, saying today, according to the New York Times, that three doses of their vaccine, in other words, the first two that you would ordinarily get plus a booster, offers significant protection against Omicron. Well, that's comforting, but let's get into the details. Uh, the company said tests of blood from individuals, it's an odd formulation, tests of blood, blood tests from individuals who got only two doses, in other words, didn't get a booster, found more than a 25-fold reduction in antibody levels against the Omicron variant compared to an earlier version. That finding indicates that two doses alone may not be sufficient to protect against infection by Omicron. But there's, part of this study is that blood samples from people one month after they got the booster showed that neutralizing antibodies against the Omicron was comparable to the same level of protection against a previous version of the virus after just the normal two doses. Um, so that sounds good, but the test suggested that the mutations in Omicron do not appear to significantly affect T cells. That's also part of the body's immune system. Now, you could just say, well, this is Pfizer just trying to get more people to get the booster shot from Pfizer and therefore make a lot of money. Okay, but I don't think there's any reason to accuse Pfizer of putting out false information. And maybe, you know, look, I got a booster. Anybody who is interested who's gone more than six months uh, should get a booster. But what we don't know is, you know, what we didn't know until now, now it's, you know, this is one piece of evidence. It doesn't completely uh, answer the question. But if Omicron is spreading very quickly, even though it now appears to be milder, you still don't want to get it, right? So if you get the booster, you have much more protection. If you get the Pfizer shot, according to Pfizer, we haven't heard from Moderna on this question. Uh, so it's just, it's such a moving target at home testing boosters, you know, um, it just always seems to be that the virus and its ability to mutate is kind of one step ahead of what science can provide. 
Nevertheless, it would be great if the 40% of people in the United States of America who only gotten one shot or no shots would become fully vaccinated, boosters aside. I think that would be terrific. But of course, as you know, it's gotten all tied up in politics. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number three, some media items for you today. A little bit more on Chris Cuomo. Uh, Obviously, you already know that he's been fired by CNN. That happened uh, on a Saturday night, a very unusual time uh, for a company, any company, not just a media company, to announce a high-profile dismissal like that. And that's why I led with it on Media Buzz Sunday morning. Uh, Since then, Cuomo has given up or been pressured into giving up his Sirius XM radio show. And you can see, you know, he's off CNN. He was a lot less attractive as a radio host. But now uh, it's also being reported that he had a book that was going to come out that has now been pulled by HarperCollins. HarperCollins rep telling a New York Times reporter, we do not intend to publish the Cuomo book. The title was Deep Denial. The HarperCollins imprint that was going to... uh, published the book, Uh, a source there also telling the New York Post that the book is being yanked. Deep Denial was going to be, I guess according to the PR material, quote, a provocative analysis of the harsh truths that the pandemic and Trump years have exposed about America, about our strength and our character, and a roadmap of the work needed to make our ideals match reality. Now, this is the thing, you know, when you have this sort of high-profile firing you know, is the Chris Cuomo book going to be any worse because he lost his job at CNN? No. Does he become a little bit radioactive in the view of publishers? Yeah. And just on the most practical level, if he was still at CNN, you know, HarperCollins brings out the book and he can be all over CNN promoting it. In fact, if he's gotten a certain clause in his contract, he can go on other networks and promote it. When you lose that platform, which is a key part of book promotion, then you become less attractive. To publishers. Now, I don't, I don't know if he's received an advance on this book, whether since whether he would be entitled to keep the advance or not, since it's not his decision uh, not to go forward. But that's the latest uh, from Cuomo World. And a follow-up to something I've talked about and written about before, Newsmax has uh, finally jettisoned its White House correspondent, Emerald Robinson. You may recall, Newsmax is saying this publicly, Emerald is still with Newsmax. However, her contract ends in January, and we will not be renewing it. We appreciate the work she has done on air for the network. Well, this is a classic case of self-immolation because uh, Emerald Robinson, a lot of, you know, obviously she was a conservative. She classed with Jen Psaki. Newsmax probably liked a lot of that. But then there was this tweet about vaccines. Dear Christians, the vaccines contain a bioluminescent marker called luciferase so that you can be tracked. And then she later wrote, read the last book of the New Testament to see how this ends. So Newsmax put out a statement saying, we fully support vaccination. We don't approve of this. Uh, Newsmax took her off the air, but continued to employ her. And yet you would think at that point, maybe Robinson would say, maybe I should not use Twitter to push this because I like working at Newsmax. But she doubled down and she continued to make these claims, which are just false. You know, there is a thing called luciferase, but it is not in the COVID-19 vaccines. 
It is not the end of the world. She described it almost in satanic terms. And when she did it again, she was permanently suspended by Twitter. First she was just suspended, and then she was just banned, really. That's the right phrase. Um, and so she's gone. Uh, the new White House correspondent for Newsmax is James Rosen, an old colleague of mine here at Fox News, terrific reporter, uh, who left the network in 2017 and has been working for Sinclair Television. All right, story number four. There's a whole lot of, I guess, civil war would be one term you could use. Sniping maybe would be a better one. Going on among conservative House Republicans. This is not just conservative House Republicans against the liberal progressives. Um, and this is why I, I can't completely decode this, but I want to share it with you. That this particular version of it comes from Salon. But you have Dan Crenshaw, Republican congressman from Texas, pretty conservative guy. Um, the other day, he slammed the House Freedom Caucus, calling lawmakers like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. He's the guy who had his committee assignments yanked by the majority Democrats after posting that Japanese animation of his character killing AOC and using a sword against President Biden. His Crenshaw, not some liberal commentator, not some you know Nancy Pelosi lieutenant, calling members of the House Freedom Caucus grifters and performance artists who tell lie after lie after lie. He said during a campaign event that made it online, we have grifters in our midst, I mean in the conservative movement, lie after lie after lie because they know something psychologically about the conservative heart. We're worried about what people are going to do to us, what they're going to infringe upon us. And his um, comments were directed at everybody, he said, in the Freedom Caucus. That would include Green, Gosar, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Jim Jordan, Madison Cawthorn. Um, Crenshaw goes on. He's not done. There are two types of members of Congress. There is performance artists and there is or are, I should correct his grammar, legislators. Performance artists are the ones who get all the attention, the ones you think are more conservative because they know how to say slogans real well. They know how to recite the lines that they know our voters want to hear. So then Salon quotes all of these people on Twitter saying, wow, um, uh, Crenshaw is defending Rhino Adam Kinzinger, who voted uh, to impeach Donald Trump, while trashing the Freedom Caucus. What's going on with Dan? Uh, here's another guy, pro-Trump guy, says Crenshaw on his radio show today. I, this new, I knew this guy was a phony long time ago. Dan Crenshaw is the Liz Cheney of Adam Kinzinger's. So, obviously, he must have known he'd get a lot of blowback from the right. Meanwhile, a bunch of House progressives, not shockingly, are introducing a resolution today to strip Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado of her committee assignments. Uh, they've been publicly pushing this. It all has to do with some pretty terrible comments that Boebert made about Ilhan Omar, who I have criticized myself for all kinds of past anti-Semitic comments. But Boebert thought it would be amusing to brand Omar and her allies members of the Jihad Squad, not just the squad, suggesting that she was a terrorist threat. Um, now, is this just a bunch of progressive House Dems? Uh, the bill is being pushed by Ayanna Presley, uh, Cori Bush, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and others. Uh, Nancy Pelosi hasn't said whether she'll back it. Nancy Pelosi backs it. This could well 
result in this kind of action against Lauren Boebert. Or, and then there was that phone call. Boebert apologized and she called Bill and Omar and it did not go well. They both ended up trashing each other. So that didn't go well. And one more uh, note here uh, from the conservatives. Uh, Matt Gates uh, yesterday talked about what would happen if the Republicans take over Congress, as just about all the prognosticators expect, in next year's elections. He talked about um, what the Oversight Committee would look like. And liberal critics are upset about this. A uh, quote from, uh, from Gates, who, yes, himself is under investigation, uh, and having charges having to do with potential sexual misconduct. I just have to say, this investigation has gone on for months and months and months, and there have been no charges against Congressman Gates. Doesn't mean there won't be, but it's been quite a long time. Okay, Gates says, we're going to take power after this next election. And when we do, it's not going to be the days of Paul Ryan and Trey Gowdy and no real oversight and no real subpoenas. Um, he, he said this at a press conference to talk about the conditions in the D.C. jail that the alleged U.S. Capitol rioters are enduring. Uh, it's going to be the days of Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Dr. Gosar and myself doing everything to get answers about claims, claims that I would consider to be debunked, but claims that Gates is pointing out nonetheless, about FBI involvement in the deadly violence on January 6th. So, look, when Republicans control Congress, there's a certain kind of oversight that happens to be aimed at Democrats, and if there's a Democrat in the White House, it is aimed at. When Democrats control Congress, the opposite is true. So I, that's why one of the reasons that elections have consequences. So I don't think we can be shocked, appalled, and falling off our chairs if Gates says, hey, things are going to be very difficult, different if people like me uh, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are running these investigations. And uh, that undoubtedly would be true. All right, I teased at the top, talked about the West Wing, and I had a West Wing-related item, and that indeed is story number five. It's a piece in the Atlantic by Joshua Molina. He's an actor. You may not immediately know his name. I didn't, but then I realized, because I watched The West Wing, that he is the guy, you'd recognize his face if you've ever seen the show, who played Will, Will Bailey on the show. He was a guy who came, worked on the White House staff about midway through the show. He kind of replaced Rob Lowe when Rob Lowe left The West Wing. And then he ended up working for uh, the vice president on the show. And then for the vice president's campaign, when the guy who was the vice president uh, ran to succeed President Bartlett. So he has written a very tough piece about Mel Gibson. So Joshua Molina is Jewish. I do not know this. He is ripping Gibson as a well-known Jew hater. Anti-Semite is too mild. And his prejudices are well-documented. Well, there certainly is, you know, that, that encounter with the police and other voicemails and so forth where, you know, Gibson has clearly made all kinds of anti-Semitic comments. So Molina asks, what does a guy have to do these days to get put on Hollywood's no-fly list? I'm a character actor. I tend to take jobs that come my way. But, and this hurts to write, you couldn't pay me enough to work with Mel Gibson. He goes on to say that if Gibson is welcomed back to the, because Gibson's career is kind of getting restarted here. And, you know, I don't call for people to be canceled. And if people in Hollywood want to work with Mel Gibson or let him make movies, let him act in movies, those are individual decisions. But Joshua Molina, not happy. If Gibson is welcomed back to direct the latest installment, a 
of this beloved franchise, it may be time to stop publishing think pieces about the power of power of cancel culture. Because if he can find big bucks and approbation in Hollywood, cancel culture simply does not exist. This doesn't seem to bother Warner Brothers executives. It makes me wonder whether to them Jews don't count. Um, he goes on to say that most maddening and confusing is that the anti-racist progressive left often seems to tolerate and sometimes produce what he calls more, more subtle forms of anti-Semitism as practiced by polite society. Again, this is this guy's opinion. It breaks my heart to ponder how many Jews must have been part of the process that led to the Warner Brothers announcements. And Warner Brothers is uh, going to bring out the latest Gibson film. And finally, Joshua Molina says, I write this knowing it's more likely to lead to a boycott by Warner Brothers of Joshua Molina than of Mel Gibson. In other words, he's kind of putting this out there knowing he doesn't, you know, he's not a big name actor, not going to get a lot of people listed. But if that's the result, so be it. I've had a nice career. It would be great if higher profile executives, producers, and actors would also take a stand. Then I could believe in this cancel culture I keep reading so much about. Uh, you know, it's a tough question, and he actually touches on it in the piece. If Mel Gibson, uh, you remember that horrible voicemail when he was yelling and screaming at his then-girlfriend and he used the N-word, uh, and, of course, the time when police stopped him. This is back, is back in Malibu in about 2006 when he went off raging against the Jews. Um, but also, you know, he's obviously a talented actor and producer, so should he not be allowed to act and produce because he has this very dark side to him? Then you go and you look at people in history. Uh, Picasso was mentioned um, in this piece and others who uh, may be great artists, writers, actors, producers, but pretty horrible human beings. Does that mean that we shouldn't look at their art read their books, buy their books, uh, frequent their movies, go watch them on Broadway. You know, it's an individual decision. I mean, on one level, it's a corporate decision. Warner Brothers could choose not to make a movie with Mel Gibson, but obviously Warner Brothers has made that decision. On the other hand, all of us have to decide. You know, I mean, throughout history, questionable people, people with pretty awful traits, have produced great art and entertainment. If you're so turned off by that, then of course you should not frequent it, read it, uh, pay for it. If you're willing to overlook that because you appreciate fine art and entertainment, that's a very different decision. So on that uh, rather phlegmatic note, I thank you for listening as always. I would appreciate for those of you who are not already addicted to this podcast, if you would subscribe at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts or Amazon Device, Amazon Music, Spotify. I think that about covers. And it's also foxnewspodcast.com. We're back here tomorrow with more Buzzfeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.